BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, friends. Happy New Year and welcome to the Bill Press Pod and our first podcast of 2022. And we start off the year with a bang. The bombshell new book called Peril by legendary Washington Post Bob Woodward of Watergate fame with the Post chief political correspondent Robert Costa. Woodward and Costa not only give the most detailed yet account of the 2020 election and the first year of the Biden presidency, they also hold nothing back in detailing Donald Trump's relentless campaign to overturn the election, his deliberate role in inciting the violent attack on the Capitol last January 6th, and his continuing efforts to undermine the Constitution and sabotage our democracy. Trump, they conclude, is an ongoing peril to democracy, which reporters have a duty to expose and condemn. Believe me, it's a powerful book. Today, co-author Robert Costa joins us to tell us all about it. Robert Costa, Happy New Year, and welcome to the first Bill Press podcast of the new year. Good to have you with us, Robert. Great to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much. And congratulations on uh, your new book, Peril, which you have authored with the uh, legendary, we have to call him that, right? Legendary Bob Woodward. I think that always goes before his name. The iconic, the legendary. (laughs) Right. Uh, (laughs) Legend in his own time, all of that kind of stuff. Right. So, I mean, a very, I must say, a very sobering account of what we lived through and survived in uh, uh, 2020 and 2021. But Robert, I I accuse you of burying the lead. I think the lead of your book, uh, first of all, it's in the title, really, but also in the last two words of the book, where you and Woodward sum everything up by saying, quote, peril remains. Boy, that is chilling. What is the peril as you see it that remains? Well, there's a scene in the end of our book where House uh, leader Jim Clyburn, who, as we all know, is so close to President Biden, he's really frustrated with Senator Manchin. And he's saying democracy is on fire because the Senate Democrats aren't moving on voting rights. It's sluggish on the filibuster on Capitol Hill. And it's Clyburn who comes out of the civil rights movement saying democracy is on fire. And then we have a scene at the end with General Milley, the head of our U.S. military, in in terms of being the senior officer, really worrying about white supremacy, about whether January 6th was the precursor to something worse, and knowing that the rest of the world was watching. Uh, And with all the different currents in the world, uh, whether it's an aggressive uh, Chinese Communist Party or uh, threats elsewhere, like Russia with Ukraine. This is a world of peril confronting uh, American leaders, and it's a domestic front of peril. And it's a peril in terms of democracy uh, with voting rights being challenged uh, across the country. 
Is um, the peril Donald Trump? He he represents a movement that is changing American democratic norms. And it's interesting to someone who's covered Trump for a decade to look at him now and to realize so much of what's happening in some ways has his his fingerprints on it, uh, but sometimes it does not. And what I mean by that is Trump sometimes is meddling in different states, pushing them to have so-called audits, which of course are not audits, mm -hmm. uh, pushing them to have different voting activities so Republicans have more control. But a lot of times it's Trump allied people doing it on their own. And, and what I've really noticed as a reporter is Trump set off a fire that continues to burn inside the Republican Party when it comes to contesting the 2020 election, contesting voting. And he sometimes is directly involved, but oftentimes he's not. He's responsible, though, for pushing the party in that direction. Do you make anything of the fact that lately some of the uh, Trumpers themselves uh, seem to become disillusioned with Trump over his support of the vaccine? Well, that the Trump movement is not... Uh, so much a cult to Trump. It's something, as I said, he sparked, mm -hmm. but it has all these different pockets and you see different power centers emerging in the post-Trump presidency landscape. Sometimes it's Turning Points USA, that conservative youth group. Sometimes it could be someone like Candace Owens who interviewed Trump about vaccines and she has more skepticism about them uh, than, than Trump. And she's a major voice on the right. Uh, Tucker Carlson, is his mm -hmm. own power center on the right. And so you've seen a competition for influence inside the Republican Party and inside the conservative movement that wasn't necessarily uh, this way when Trump was president. And that comes to the vaccine as well. well. And I think one of the central questions in your book, in Bob Woodward's last book, Rage, um, Margaret Sullivan touched on it in the Washington Post uh, on January 1st, if democracy is under siege, and you've indicated it is, James Clyburn says it is, I believe it is, uh, what is the role of the media? Uh, is the media doing enough to talk about and, and to warn people about democracy under siege? Well, not to toot our own horn here, but I, I think Bob Woodward and I have done as much as we could over the past three, four months since the peril came out in September to say that democracy is under threat. Oh yeah, yes, absolutely. And and I, I know we know each other a little bit, Bill, but anyone who's worked with me knows I'm, I'm kind of the opposite of a dramatic guy. I'm an old school reporter. Mm -hmm. I value being an old school reporter, nonpartisan, get the story right, be tough on everybody. Uh, but I spent nine to 10 months with Woodward digging into this. And my reporter's assessment, my conclusion after talking to hundreds and hundreds of people for hours about what happened at the end of the Trump presidency and what's happening now in the States is that this is so real and uh, what happened. It, it was so dark that you can't look away from it and you can't, as a journalist, uh, start saying, oh, it was just an episode. Uh, this was something that was a reckoning for American democracy, unlike anything I've seen in my lifetime, and probably we've seen in a, in a very long time, because the whole peaceful transfer of power, which even with Nixon, Nixon gets on the helicopter and people are going out to dinner that night in Georgetown, there are no riots about mm -hmm. Nixon. Uh, this, this is a totally 
abnormal American experience, what happened on January 6th. And what we painted in our book is a picture that shows this wasn't just about Trump being idle on the day of the insurrection. The most important takeaway I had as a reporter, and I hope this comes through in the book, is that Trump may have been idle on the day itself watching TV. And we hear people talking about that from the committee this week. But the most important thing is that Trump was anything but idle. He was leading a coordinated pressure campaign, which others will judge whether it was a criminal conspiracy or not, but it was certainly a coordinated pressure campaign to overturn an election, uh, prevent Biden from taking office, and at the very least, uh, make it almost impossible for Biden to govern. Trump did this with intent. He did it repeatedly. He pulled every lever of power, whether it was judicial, uh, legal, uh, political, leaning on his own vice president, lawmakers, state officials. He did everything possible with intent to overturn an election. And, and that happened. And so at, moving forward, what's the role of journalists? I think it's stay cool. Uh, this is don't get emotional about it, but be as aggressive as possible in telling the story and telling the truth. I was uh, just checking here because I, this is one of the things you just mentioned, I had made a note of in terms of Donald Trump's role. Uh, as early as June 22nd, you report on page 131, uh, he tweeted out, millions of mail-in ballots will be printed by foreign countries and others. It will be the scandal of our times, right? So he basically set the whole big lie in motion six months before the election. He did. And, and, and history is going to ask questions about people inside the White House, inside the administration, like Attorney General at the time, Bill Barr. Mm -hmm. Where was the line uh, of enabling uh, what was really done to try to pull him back? Maybe nothing was. Because what we really see is a culture inside of the Trump administration in the spring of 2020, summer of 2020 period, where it becomes one of desperation. And there's a scene in the book that sticks with me where Tony Fabrizio, Trump's pollster, is with oh, him yeah. in the Oval Office. And he says to Trump, you know, voters are fatigued by how you're handling the pandemic. They're fatigued by how you're handling the job as president. And he says to the effect something of, they're fatigued while I'm effing fatigued. And uh, everyone's silent. And Trump was frustrated. And he, in 2019, had tried to stir the pot on Biden and Ukraine. We don't need to get into that. Led to an impeachment. He then stirs the pot again with the Hunter hard drive and playing that up at the end of the campaign. He's, and also, the most important thing he's stirring up is the idea of fraud before the election even takes place. And while at the end, people like Bill Barr and, and Pat Cipollone and others are saying to Trump, there was no fraud. This was at the end in November or December. This isn't during that hot summer period where Trump was unbound. Another of our colleagues who has been sounding the alarm, of course, is Bart Gelman, in, in, most recently in The Atlantic, uh, where he says that um, January 6th, don't think of it as a one and done, right? It's a dress rehearsal uh, for what's to come. Do you share that fear? Well, that's exactly the phrase that Millie uses in our book. Was this a dress rehearsal? Yep. I mean, Milley, uh, based on our reporting, privately refers to the Russian Revolution of the early 20th century, which was a dress rehearsal, for, uh, 1905, a dress rehearsal for 1917. And he wonders, was January 6th, the 1905 revolution that no one talks about really, the first Russian Revolution, which leads to a bigger revolution in 17? 
and Bart Gelman, his piece is provocative and v- very deeply reported and and well done. And I think it's very much in the same current of peril, which is Trump has set off an entirely new hurricane of norm changing in almost a redefinition of the truth in American political life and American constitutional life that we're still kind of grappling with as a press, as a, a media, uh, as a country. And I, I love Gelman's approach, and I hope we had it in our book as well, to just be vigilant to this is happening. And the most important thing to do, I've noticed, with a lot of people sometimes when you start talking about democracy under fire, they go, oh, every, everything's fine, because I get it. A lot of people don't pay attention to politics every day. The most important thing is to give people facts, new facts that are irrefutable, and try to help them understand what's happening out there. So it doesn't sound like my opinion about things, but it's just saying, here's what you really should know is happening. Uh, And that's what you do in your book, I must say, in both 2020 and 2021, step by step, almost day by day at the Pentagon, in the White House, uh, in the Congress, uh, around the country. You know, Robert, I was struck reading Peril. and I realized how far you and Bob had gone in warning America of the danger. Uh, I went back to what really stunned me, uh, knowing Bob for a long time and having read every one of his books, by his last book, Rage, where for the first time, I think, as a reporter, you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Bob Woodward himself said it's important, uh, if I can use a phrase, to step over the line. I want to read the last sentence of his book, Rage, quote, when his performance as president is taken in its entirety, I can only reach one conclusion. Trump is the wrong man for the job. Uh, That was a significant moment in Bob Woodward's professional life. Uh, Is it a conclusion you share as well? It was a significant moment in Woodward's life. I actually did a story for the Post about that book, uh, the first story on that book, and I remember reading the galley copy of Rage and coming to the end of the book with, where, where Woodward makes that statement, that conclusion, and I looked up at Bob and I said, "Whoa, that's different right. for a for a Woodward opinion to be in a book, a conclusion about a president. It's because it's so different than Bob's." usual approach, but Bob was right then and he's right now because what Bob and I have discussed at length, what he was doing at Rage was not offering commentary. He was offering a conclusion based on reporting. And I don't know how you can look at peril and read it carefully and not come to a conclusion that the same one Woodward came to with Trump on Rage, which is President Trump was someone who at every turn, especially at the end of his presidency, tried to use the office and his constitutional power for personal political means that went against the constitutional flow of the country that led uh, to total disruption in the transition period and ultimately included an insurrection under his watch. Uh, And that's the dictionary definition uh, of... That's the antonym of what a presidency should be about. Uh, That's kind of someone using the presidency against itself. Would you go so far as to say that any reporter today who does not recognize and um, and maybe assert and warn of the undermining of our democracy or the attempts to, uh, that any reporter who does such is not doing his or her job? 
Well, people have different jobs. I'm not going to weigh in on people's specific jobs, but I think broadly speaking, you're making a very valid point. I, I, I would compare it to this, Bill. Think about the steroid scandal in sports and in, in baseball. Mm-hmm. A lot of people knew it was going on. It corrupted the sport uh, in many respects for years. But a lot of it went unreported. Now, a lot of it did get reported, but some of it didn't. And people make choices in life, in journalism, what to cover, what not. And it, and I would argue, it's not a sports writer, but steroids deserved far more coverage at the time as something that was really at the center of the sport. And even though sports was kind of more fun to cover in a lighthearted way, the sport was being actively corrupted by steroids and it probably didn't get enough attention. Just like now, people may like the red and blue aspect of politics, who's up and down, campaigns, and that's fine. I enjoy that aspect of politics too. I'm a political junkie. That said, the main story of our time is the actual undergirding, the foundation of this entire system. Democracy is under active threat. Uh, and eroding in many places. And so even if you don't love the the direction of where the story is going, that is where it's going. And it's the responsibility to cover the story as is, not as you want. So let's let's talk about a very um, specific challenge uh, that's facing us now. January 6th is Thursday. Uh, The United States Congress will be holding a prayer service to commemorate that awful day, that insurrection. Donald Trump will be holding a press conference at the same time in Palm Beach, Florida. We know what he's going to say, right? It's going to be the repeat of the big lie, the trumpeting, trumpeting if I use the word, of the big lie. How should we deal with that? Well, you have to cover it, but you don't need to cover it live. Um, this is mm-hmm. something where Good I point. would argue as a reporter, you're judicious in how you approach it. I believe people need to know what Trump is doing. I'm a big believer in covering Trump vigorously. For example, Trump uh, on Monday issued an endorsement of Victor Orban yeah, in Hungary. About that. Right. And, right. And that's something that deserves coverage. An ex-president's endorsing a far-right leader in Europe. Okay. That's something that deserves coverage because it's so surreal, but it's happening. It needs to be documented, needs to be explained. You don't not cover it. But you cover it in a way that really explains to people the significance of what Trump's doing and what he's saying, and then providing context if he's if he's offering a lie on the election. And I think that's what needs to be done with these press conferences. Let people know what Trump is saying, uh, but spell it out if he's lying about the election uh, and totally unfounded claims about fraud. You have to articulate that, um, but but you don't want to just. If you ignore Trump, here's the thing I always thought about Trump in 2016. The media got criticized for covering Trump too much in 2016. I always thought that was a a, a wrong assessment. You could argue his rallies were covered too much. I actually thought Trump was not covered enough. His personal relationships, his financial dealings, his business history, his political relationships, he was undercovered in 2016 because people didn't think he was going to win. His rallies were overdone in terms of coverage. But Trump deserves enormous coverage, but doesn't need to have live unfiltered coverage. Uh, I know you're also, Robert, as a student of American history. Uh, Have we ever had a president in our history who's been a former president who's been so disruptive 
uh, once he left the the Oval Office. I mean, no one in modern history. I was thinking thinking about this the other day. I mean, Nixon leaves and goes back to California, San Clemente, and he wants to rehabilitate himself for history, but he's He's in political winter. Reagan, of course, for health reasons, is in political winter. Clinton does his foundation and he helps his wife's campaigns. I would say Clinton, in a political sense, is probably the most active of recent presidents. Obama's around, but still busy with his documentaries and speeches and foundations. Carter, not as a political figure, but very active in his post-presidency. What do you think, Bill? I mean, I did, that's well, my assessment. But, but certainly none of them as negative, pointedly negative about their successor, right? Even Bill Clinton, as I recall, right, was not out there uh, attacking George Bush. And sometimes Carter would be critical of people's foreign policy decisions, right. but he wasn't an act. No one ever thought Carter was going to run again and be someone totally disruptive. Robert, you mentioned a few people in the book uh, that I want to ask you about and their role in the Trump presidency uh, and beyond. Uh, let's do that right after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Of course, our guest today, Robert Costa, co-author with Bob Woodward of the great new book, Peril, on the Bill Press Pod. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back. And today's podcast is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers. Yes, teachers of America doing God's work every day. Under the leadership of Randy Weingarten, 1.7 million strong, the members of the AFT, teaching everything from pre-K up through grades 12 and into higher education as well, on the front lines in America's classrooms, getting kids back into class and still dealing with COVID. God bless them. We thank them for their great work and their support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at AFT.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. We rejoined Robert Costa here on the Bill Press Pod. Uh, it's a new book with Bob Woodward, Peril. It'll scare the hell out of you, and you will uh, end it like I did, saying, boy, it's lucky we survived those two years. Uh, everything that went on. I want to ask you first, Robert, about before we get to some of the people, COVID, the role of COVID. Would you say COVID was the number one factor in the 2020 election and how, how Trump handled it particularly? No doubt about it. He uh, might have won if he had handled it differently, told the truth. Well, it's hard to predict whether he would have won. I mean, Trump at the end is so unmoored from any kind of coherent strategy. Our book shows his advisors are are really 
unhappy with the way he zigzags from talking point to talking point. He has rallies that don't really have a theme. He's angry all the time. He's lashing out at critics and the media and on the and the pandemic's raging. Uh, and all those things are a factor. I also believe Biden uh, at the time was he was able to offer himself up as a seasoned pair of hands and it it's it was almost the right candidate for the democrats at the right time and uh it was hard for trump to really find a way in on biden and and the kind of things that trump got to stick on clinton about uh her perceived relationships with her foundation and foreign leaders and big business didn't stick with biden mm-hmm. in the same way and so uh, trump i think so much of trump at the end was in part a, it was about the suburbs and men and women walking away from his handling of the pandemic. But it was the whole Trump experience for so many voters I encountered had become exhaustive uh, and they were ready to have someone a little bit more low key come in. Yeah, it seems it really worked against Trump and it really worked for Biden in the sense that uh, locking himself up in his basement might have been the best thing that he had to do. Right. Uh, I think some Biden advisors would probably agree with you on that. <laughs> so looking back, you finish the book, you have Bob Woodward, you send it to the to your publisher. Uh, are there any heroes uh, that that stand out in your book in your mind? I don't think I would ever use the word heroes. Okay. Uh, there are people at the end of the day who made decisions uh, that were – appropriate in terms of keeping democratic stability. And anybody, anybody who comes out looking good. Well, I, I just, here's the thing, people, I've got into some debates with different readers about this because some people will say, oh, uh, Bill Barr, he comes off well in the book. He, he, you must think he's a hero. And I said, I wouldn't be so fast to make that conclusion. Think about this. I said, it all depends on the reader and how they see things. We have a scene in April 2020 in our book where Barr is advising Trump on the campaign and he's saying to Trump, voters think you're an expletive, you got to change your ways. And I said, a lot of people read that section and say, Bill Barr is out of control. He's an attorney Mm -hmm. general, the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, working as a political strategist for an embattled president. That's so inappropriate in the eyes of some people. Uh, that it kind of shows Barr as just a political operator, even though at the end of the book in December, Barr is, when he resigns, he is someone who says Trump's out of control and saying there's fraud. And so the point is, is Barr a hero? Is Barr a villain? You can say either, but I know from my reporting, he's complicated to say the least. And he made certain decisions that history is going to evaluate, including his resignation, but also the loyalty he showed to Trump uh, throughout his entire tenure and the political strategy he offered. And so and Pence is another complicated figure. Does Pence ultimately decide not to cause disruption on the day of January 6th? He does. Uh, it was a winding path for Pence. Uh, he talked to a lot of people about whether he had an opening, whether there was a possibility to kind of do what Trump wanted. Ultimately, he concluded there was no path, as we all know, as the book shows. But it's it's a human story that's not really about heroes or villains, but about very human people sometimes doing things that are, quote, right, and sometimes doing things that are wrong to the point of possibly criminal. I must say, as one reader, right, I think Bill Barr comes across looking better 
uh, in the book than he did at the time uh, with the reporting. You know, I'm thinking about uh, his mischaracterization of the Mueller memo, memo um, Mueller report rather, uh, at, at the time where he was sort of seen as Trump's personal attorney and not really as the attorney general of the United States. But again, that's my conclusion. But the other person I think who comes across looking better than I believe maybe he should or has is Lindsey Graham. You have him in the book on several occasions telling Trump, deal with it, dude, you lost the election. Yeah, it's Graham at the end of the book who is more loyal to Trump than ever. And I think Graham, yes. it was our prism of showing the Republican Party today. And that you could say, I agree, Graham has some moments in the book where he seems like he's totally calling Trump out, but he also has a lot of moments where he's trying to be Trump's best friend and golf buddy. And that's where really the Republican Party is today. I don't, I don't think there's a better prism for the GOP in 2022 than Lindsey Graham, a former McCain ally who has become a total Trump loyalist, someone who criticized Trump heavily in 16. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we remember all those clips. <laughs> but now he's the one, even after an insurrection, who's trying to rehabilitate Trump. And whether it's McCarthy going down to Mar-a-Lago after the insurrection, or Graham playing golf with him repeatedly, there's a movement afoot to rehabilitate Trump, not to push Trump away. Some like McConnell would like to see Trump float away on a boat and not come back to shore. Uh, but even McConnell is dealing with the reality that Trump has political capital inside the Republican Party. And that's why McConnell hasn't fought someone like Herschel Walker, the Trump ally in Georgia, from being his endorsed candidate for that Senate primary. Uh, I want to come back to this word hero, which I guess maybe I'm loosely using. But I have to say, if there is one in the book to me, and you've mentioned him several times, it's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Mark Milley. More than anybody else, it seems. Of course, Mike Pence, I don't want to take away from him. I agree with you. He showed a lot of courage, uh, despite intense pressure uh, to do the opposite. Uh, but Mark Milley, more than anyone else, I think, stood up to Trump uh, and said, no way is the military going to be involved in this political exercise. He did. And, and Milley's someone who had to... Milley's someone who changed. I mean, I think that moment in the book where... Milley and Secretary Esper are walking across Lafayette Square and recognize Trump oh, has used yeah. them. And, and mm -hmm. some Milley critics have said publicly, oh, he's just trying to, everything he does is about trying to go back to June 1st and, and rewrite history, rewrite his reputation. That's not for me to judge. But you do see Milley after Lafayette Square, a changed person based on our reporting. He is someone who is really starting to worry about Trump. And that's when Trump thinks about bringing troops in militarizes a mm -hmm. lot of things, whether it's in whether it's about talks on attacking Iran or talks on China. Milley has his guard up day in, day out. Is Trump going to go out of control here? And he talks to Gina Haspel and others in the intelligence community and says, we just got to land this plane. This is a rocky landing. This is got to <laughs> land this plane. And the, the most fascinating thing to us, that, that's why we put it at the beginning of the book, is that we didn't know at the time January 6th, January 7th, January 8th, that it wasn't just a domestic political crisis, but we had to, and I don't think it probably has gotten enough attention long-term in a strange way, that the rest of the world was really wondering about America. What was going on here? Was the United States stable? And it's such a jarring thing to think about. The rest of the world, allies and adversaries, really worried about US stability 
for the first time in probably decades, if not centuries. Well, the story you tell about Milley called uh, the prime Min- or the f- defense secretary, I guess, of China, whatever the title is, right, uh, to say, "Don't worry, you know, we got this. We got this under control. We're not going to be invading you." Right. That's right. Uh, I had never heard that story before. That was incredible. And Milley testified under oath that he made both of those calls. Uh, and that those are to, to think about the world we live in, that we don't live in this isolated Washington Beltway bubble where everything's just about kind of what happens here. The rest of the world is really on edge about everything in the United States. And when they see an attack on the Capitol, uh, spurred by the president's supporters and the president sitting in the Oval Office, not really acting quickly to deal with it, they're wondering what is happening inside the United States. Uh, I have to ask you, um, before we get to our final question here, I want to ask you about 2022. But before we do, um, you know, we all are very protective of our sources, but I still feel compelled to ask you. We've talked about Millie, Mike Pence, Bill Barr, and Lindsey Graham. Did you and Bob uh, interview every one of them? We, as we say at the end of the book, the entire book's written on deep background, which means we had extensive interviews with many, many key players and participants aides to those people, advisors. Um, and we had, at the end of the day, 6,000 pages of transcripts we sifted through to write Whoa. this book. Uh, and we talked to many firsthand witnesses and participants. But in order to protect them and to really want, we wanted the truth, Bill. And to, to get to the truth, when I, in a perfect world, and I've discussed this with Woodward, in a perfect world, I would love every interview to be on the record. I mm-hmm. really would. But most people, when it's on the record in this kind of environment we live in, aren't truthful or or they just skim the surface. We want truth. And to get there, we use this method of deep background, which means we will interview people at length, use the material we collect and are able to confirm. We just don't reveal where we learned it from. And the only two people we will confirm we did not speak to are the President Trump and President Biden. Now, let's... One, just a couple of words about 2022 looking ahead. Over the weekend, um, all of us were chilled, I think, by the release of a couple of polls, one from your Washington Post and the University of Maryland, which showed that 40% of Republicans and even 23% of Democrats believe that violence against the government is sometimes justified Uh, accompanied by a CBS poll that showed that 68% of Americans believe that January 6th was not a one-off. It was just a harbinger of more violence. With that in mind, looking ahead of 2022, Robert Costa, what do you predict on the political scene for this country this year? Well, we saw what happened in Virginia uh, in 2021. Uh, Republicans like Youngkin are able to to find a way back a little bit. And so that could be a model for many Republicans in 2022. Uh, You also saw in 2021, Gavin Newsom was able to win in California in a tough circumstance. So Democrats have some some upside. I mean, they they can make a case that they've handled things well on the pandemic to a certain extent. The thing it's hard for me to gauge, having not been out in the country reporting recently, is how much simmering anger there is about school closures, about pandemic, about businesses closing, how much does that anger out there among some swing voters, suburban voters feed into a possible Republican wave? I'm not a a predictor and I don't believe that it's going to be a guaranteed Republican uh, takeover of the House or the Senate. 
Uh, but if re- Democrats continue to stall on some of their major items like the Build Back Better social spending bill on voting rights, you could see de- Democratic voters depressed. And on the other side, Republican voters do seem energized by pandemic restrictions and trying to get back. But so much is up in the air. I hate to predict, Bill, because mm-hmm. if this pandemic, let's pray, let's if it ebbs off a little bit in the coming months and things really open up as it gets warmer and it becomes more en- endemic, the economy could start to surge. Inflation can maybe cool off a little bit. And, ma- and maybe Biden's in a strong position two years after uh, kind of coming in. And, and he may be in a great position, especially if the Democrats come around on the child tax credit and other issues within Build Back Better. So we're at a kind of a TBD moment for 2022. And the other thing that we don't know is whether Americans really are concerned. They don't seem to be about this. Let's go back to where we began this threat to our democracy, what's going on in these attempts on many different levels, you know, in the Congress and particularly in the state legislatures, and of course, Donald Trump's continuing activities. Well, it's going to be up to the January 6th committee in many ways to make the case. I mean, think about Watergate, Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men and the movie and the book all played a role, but it was the Watergate hearings that made the country sit up. And I just wonder, mm-hmm. will the country sit up at all for the six hearings? And that's going to be a lot on the committee's shoulders and really convincing some of these witnesses to go public. Who's going to be the John Dean of January 6th? Well, you and Bob Woodward have, uh, have pay- plowed the ground there for all of us. Uh, thank you, Robert Costa. And I guess the conclusion of our conversation today is peril remains, right? Unfortunately true. Great to be with you, Bill. Robert Costa, thanks so much. And that's it for today's podcast with Robert Costa. Again, the name of the book is Peril, a must read if you're interested in politics. And a link to buy the book you'll find in the notes, the episode notes to this edition of the Bill Press podcast. Well, it's going to be a big week, a showdown in the Senate on voting rights expected on Thursday. Also on Thursday, Congress will be observing the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, while Donald Trump holds his own event, so-called news conference or speech, the big lie, whatever, down in Palm Beach. So there's going to be lots to talk about on Friday's roundtable. Don't forget to come back for the next edition of the Bill Press Pod, Friday's roundtable with three of Washington's top political reporters. In the meantime, take care of yourself. Be good, be strong, be sane. We'll see you Friday.